0: Of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters until the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. Our Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful that You speak to us through it. And even today, You shall speak to us in glorious and eternal truths. And so I simply ask, we simply ask you this morning that we would hear you and that the truths in which we shall consider through word and sacrament today would make an impact upon our lives that would draw us to you. And we would find ourselves more in love with a God who sent his son to die for us. And that love would compel us into righteousness and Christ-likeness. Lives full of joy, live for your glory. So come and work in our hearts. We are in need of you today. We are in need of your Spirit upon our lives to live powerfully within us, to guide and to lead. And so we ask you to send him, even as we consider your word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It was on May 20th, 1531, in the Netherlands, that a man named Sieg Furks was beheaded for being baptized as a believer. The court documents read that Siegfurks on this 20th of March, 1531, is condemned by the court to be executed with the sword. His body shall be laid on a wheel and his head set upon a stake because he has been rebaptized. Thirty years later, across the English Channel, 288 Protestants were burned at the stake under the reign of the Roman Catholic Queen Mary. Among them was one archbishop, 25 clergymen, 55 women, and even four children. Their crime was denying the physical presence of Christ in communion. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican historian and theologian, says the doctrine in question was the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporately, literally, locally, and materially present? under the forms of the bread and wine. Did they or did they not believe that the real body of Christ was present on the so-called altar so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priest? Did they or did they not? That was the simple question. If they did not believe, they were burned. We think about these events some 500 years ago, and, and we are, of course, struck by how vicious people can be concerning the ordinances of our God or His sacraments. And we're, we're stunned by it, aren't we? I and mean, we think, how can that possibly be? How can anybody possibly do this? And you know, I wonder, even as we are stunned from, from the brutality of days long ago, if, if the pendulum for us has swung to the opposite extreme, where, where they may be noted by their brutality when it comes to, the ordinances, perhaps the American church may be known by its superficiality. That Christians, these days, they died for their beliefs about the sacraments. And yet today, I think there are countless people who happily claim to be a follower of Christ and willingly forsake them. There are many who will say, you know, I watch TV on church and have not participate in the Lord's Supper in years. And others, even more astonishing, I think, who will, who will say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. I identify Him as my Master, but yet at the same time refuse to obey Him in being baptized. And say, well, it's, uh, it's inconvenient to me or it's awkward. I'd, I don't want to get up there. You have to get wet in front of everybody. And, and for some reason, they think that they could follow Christ as their Lord, and, and, and yet say, I will not obey you in the very first command that you give about obedience, about discipleship. That they, I mean, they, listen, they weigh things differently than we do. We, I think, have in some sense lost any capacity to feel weight when we come to the table or enter the baptismal waters. And so my goal this morning, by God's grace, is to add a little weight to us, if you will, and no, no, I'm not trying to counter your New Year's resolution when I say add weight. I, I want there to be a, a, a seriousness and a greater delight and a joy when we come to remember our Lord through the rites in which he has given us, that God by his grace and through his word might even create a hunger in our souls to come to this table today. You know, the early church was devoted to the Lord's Supper. You read in the Book of Acts and the the church begins in chapter two and there's this wonderful little verse in verse forty two in which it describes what the church was like. And it says the church was devoted to four things. The church was devoted to teaching, the church was devoted to fellowship, that is to, to one another living lives together, the church was devoted to prayer, and the church was devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, when it says the church was devoted to the breaking of bread, it's not saying the church was devoted to eating, right? There were no Baptists at this time, okay? there, There's a reference to the Lord's Supper. They devoted themselves to communion. And then later we get to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, and we see the Scripture says, and the church gathered on the first day of the week to break bread. So one of the reasons in which they're gathering together is to take The Lord's Supper, or participate in communion. And and then finally we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and and we see that they're doing it, but they're doing it all wrong, and so Paul, in a couple chapters in that book, lays out for us the instructions on how to come to the Lord's table and how to partake of this meal together. In fact, he says, what I have received from the Lord, I pass on to you. And this instruction, the Lord's Supper in the early church was central to their worship. And the reason why is before they ever had the Lord's Supper, they, of course, had the Last Supper. And the night before Jesus died... Uh, He gathered the apostles for Passover, and this is what we, that meal we have now called uh, church tradition, the Last Supper. It was in many ways the last Passover ever rightly celebrated, and the First Communion. It It was the end of the annual reminder of the Old Covenant, and it was the beginning of the perpetual reminder of the New Covenant, and it was so central to what was going on that all four Gospels explains this meal and how, how Jesus gave it to us. Luke is unique, however, in, in adding this little phrase that is helpful for us. You'll find it in verse 19 when Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. And so Luke shows us that it's not simply a meal for Jesus and the apostles, but Jesus is actually anticipating this ordinance or sacrament that you will continue to do this. And the reason, reason why is you'll do this in order to remember my death, Jesus says. And so through this meal, uh, Jesus actually imparts an understanding of his death. If you were to ask Jesus, why are you going to die? He would explain it to you through the Passover meal. But before he does, Luke shows us that Jesus is actually orchestrating his own death. He's bringing it together, as you know, Verse 1 in Luke 22. We read, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And so here, we, here we are. Uh, we're in, in Jerusalem, as you know, in our study of Luke, and we're during the Passover, and the pilgrims are swelling the holy city as they gather to celebrate. and, and Jesus has come, and and he's and he's teaching in the temple courts, and he's and he's healing people, and and, and masses of people are coming to him. You look in verse thirty seven of chapter twenty one, and every day he was teaching in the temple. Right, every day he's there, and people gather to him, and people are delighted with his teaching and his ministry. But not every. Is pleased, as you know, right? The chief among those who are displeased are the religious leaders, as you see in verse 2. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. The the chief priests wanted to kill Jesus. If I I had a little more time, I think we'd probably do well just to settle on that idea, the deep irony. That those who lead God's people are out to kill God himself. In fact, they have been for quite some time, have they not? And Jesus has uh, upset them deeply. He has impacted their finances in in clearing the temple. He's closing the market there. He's overshadowed their authority. He's openly denounced them, even calling them uh, names such as hypocrites and so forth. And the Sadducees in particular were given this authority by Rome to kind of rule over Jerusalem and the Jewish people. And so Rome says, okay, we'll let you guys kind of exercise some authority here as long as you keep things calm. Well, here comes Jesus and hundreds and thousands of people are coming to him. And there's evidently this fear that a a riot is going to emerge, or some type of revolution, that Jesus is this revolutionary. And you think, well, who's going to be blamed if uh, the Jews take up arms to try to overthrow Rome? It will be the Sadducees, of course. They are the ones who have put in power. I think this is what he means, Luke means in verse 2 when he says, they were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Or they feared what the people might do. They, they didn't love the people, these chief priests. They, they didn't care for the people. They feasted off them. They, they received their power and their wealth from them. And they were so blinded by their greed, they decided Jesus had to die. And, and yet that presents a problem, because he's pretty popular, isn't it? And so the question is, okay, how can we kill him without starting the riot? Right? How, do we, how do we get at him without the masses rising up in his defense? If they're not careful, they're going to start the very thing they're trying to prevent this revolution. Well, the solution comes to them from a very unlikely source, one of Jesus' own apostles, as you see in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called the Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and Officers, how he might betray him to them. These religious leaders receive Judas. Judas says, Okay, I'm willing to hand him over to you. This, of course, fills them with delight, as you see in verse 5. And they were, they were glad, There's this murderous glee, these holy men, happy to commit the worst of evil. And there Judas uniting with the chief priests to combine their efforts in order to undo Jesus. I wonder if the, the human rejection of God can be any clearer. You have the leaders of God's people and even one of his own apostles collaborating in order to, to murder him. <laughs> You know, some people, perhaps you've heard this, some people say, you know, if if I just saw Jesus, then I would believe, right? And maybe you've even said that. Well, I, I just want to point out to you, these people did see him not only saw him, they, one man lived with him for three years and saw him heal people and experienced his love and humility and compassion and heard his teaching, and yet they still conspire with him to kill him. And it's almost like, how is this absolutely possible? How is it possible that one of the apostles would do this? I, I, I think this is a powerful reminder to us Hamilton Baptist Church, that, that we, like Judas, right, we, we have great privileges, do we not, to be close with Jesus, that we, like Judas, have professed our faith in Christ and follow him, that we have heard his preaching and we understand his power. And Judas understood all this and yet walked away. He is a picture of those who, who turn their back on Christ, who may follow him for a while, but then reveal their hearts eventually and, and, and walk away from him, reminding us that we must persevere in our faith. We must labor and pray that God would keep us close to him, as Judas shows us the opposite. And we're told why he does so. Why does he betray Jesus? Quite simply, it's not that surprising, perhaps. Verse 5, and says, they were glad and agreed to give him money. <laughs> Matthew tells us that it's Judas who brought up, says, okay, how much are you going to pay me if I do this? Uh, John will tell us that Judas is a thief, and he's actually been stealing from Jesus all along. And now, now he's not only stealing, but he's actually willing to, to hand him over. And, and can you imagine um, how great that money must have seemed to him to do such a thing? Like how his heart must have stirred at the prospect of a bag of silver, willing to conspire to com- commit murder he clearly disregarded Jesus' teaching from Luke 12 when Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness. I mean, he's a reminder to us, I think, that love of money is dangerous, is it not? It is. One pastor says it's, it's like love of money is like giving Satan the keys, the car keys to your life. He's going to take you places you do not want to go. And so once again, he warns us. Hamilton Baptist Church Keep yourself from the love of money. Be content with what you have. As those who are not, emerges Jesus' enemies and converge against Him. But there is one more enemy we have not considered, isn't there? We see Him in verse 3. Somewhat startling, isn't it? It says, Then Satan entered... Judas called Iscariot. John also tells us of Judas's uh, influence or possession by the devil. And, and here Luke is helpful. He lifts the curtain for us and shows us kind of what's going on behind the scenes. Now, you might be tempted, okay, well, if, if the devil's entered him, then maybe he's not guilty of this crime against Jesus. Well, Jesus in verse 22 of this chapter will say of Judas, woe to that man who will betray me. Clearly he is guilty. Judas has agreed to betray him. He's guilty for it. But he's clearly being influenced by the devil. It reminds me of Acts chapter 5 when Peter confronts Ananias, who has also sinned out of his greed. And he says to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? And so these men are, are influenced by the devil and yet at the same time culpable for their actions. As you clearly, if you read Acts 5, you'll see Ananias certainly certainly is. Well, as we saw, the, the chief priests were, were filled with joy at this idea, this plan's all coming together. I imagine, how, how, what kind of perverse delight must Satan have had when he, when he brought all these pieces together to bring about this plan that he has been trying to bring about since the very beginning, trying to derail God's plan from the beginning of creation. In fact, we've already seen him in Luke's gospel. He came to Jesus, as you know, right after he's baptized in Luke chapter 4. And, and, and we knew at that time we had not seen the end of him. For uh, Luke will tell us the devil left him until a more opportune time. Evidently, this is the opportune time to combine the jealous malice of the religious leaders and the greed of Judas in order to kill the Messiah. Right. And, and, and now we see them all conspiring To bring this about, but there is one other person working to bring this about, isn't there? There's one other that wants to see this happen, and it is, of course, the Lord Himself, isn't it? And Luke reminds us in the midst of all this planning, all these people uh, conspiring, that that it is Jesus who is in control, even as He makes preparations for His Passover meal. No, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, I I think this is such a fascinating little passage to me. Is it, I don't. Does it read like a spy novel to you? Um, you know, he says, "Listen, okay. Listen, what you do? You go into the city, and you'll see a man. He's carrying a jar of water, which would be unusual. Women only carry a jar of water. That's the guy you follow. You follow him back to the house, and here's the code. You say." The teacher asks, "Where's the room?" And then he knows. Okay, you're you're from these guys. It's very kind of interesting. We don't see much of this happen uh, like this, and 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 Jesus kind of working all this together. And why such secrecy? Why why go about? Why not say, "Oh, we're having it at Frank's house, right?" You know, Frank. You know, go over to his house. That's where. Why why all this jar and, and, and passwords and all the rest? Well, commentators a thousand years ago were saying the reason why is he? Jesus is purposely trying to keep Judas from knowing where he would eat that night. Because what better place for them them to come to arrest him in just a quiet room with just a handful of his apostles, and they could come get him at that time. And and Judas, of course, is going to betray him soon enough, but Jesus wanted to make sure it would happen after he shared this meal with them. And, and so he sends them off, and it's amazingly, it, it happens just like he said. Look in verse 13, and they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared uh, the Passover. Can you oh, Imagine what kind of impact this might have had on them, that, yeah, they walked in town, there's the guy with the jar, just like he said, and, yep, and, and they went to the house, and the guy said, yeah, the room's ready, and, and they must have once again been reminded that our, our Lord is, is not simply just another rabbi or even a prophet, He's, he has this control as he sends off two of his most trusted apostles to make the Passover preparations. So what they would have done is they would have got a lamb and they would have taken it to the temple and there it would be ritually slaughtered and then they would secure bread and and wine and then find the home and then present the lamb to the owner to be roasted on the the pomegranate stick And, and then they would wait as the sun would set for Jesus and the others to arrive. I think the point of all this, why does Luke give us so many details of just getting the room secure, is that he's trying to communicate that Jesus is in control. In fact, this is not the only place that we'll see Jesus in control in Luke 22. He's going to talk in a moment about his body being broken. He knows this is happening, his blood being spilled. In verse 21, he's going to announce, I know I'm going to be betrayed, and I know by whom. In verse 34, he's going to, he's going to foretell Peter's coming denial. This, it, the death of Christ, therefore, please understand, is no tragic accident. He is not being outwitted by the devil. He is—he is evil. Men are not getting the upper hand on Christ. He knows the chief priest's intent. He knows Judas' plot. He even knows the devil's involvement. In fact, Jesus is as determined to die, even more so, as all those who are conspiring to bring it about. But unlike the rest, Jesus knew what his death would accomplish. And it's at that Passover meal that he goes on to explain his understanding of the meaning of this meal. And so consider, secondly, uh, understanding his death. Notice verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting to note Jesus opening his heart to them. Earnestly I've desired to share this meal with you before I die. It's, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. It, literally it's with desire I have desired. And I don't know if you can imagine that scene of Jesus looking these men in the face and says I've I so much wanted to be able to be here alone with you guys to share this Passover before I die. That raises the question, doesn't it, why? I mean, if Jesus is about to die, does it really matter what his last meal is? Isn't is the important thing is that they're all just together and sharing these moments? And yet we've seen Jesus is intently working to bring about this Passover meal and all the details of the Passover. And the reason is, is that, is that it's, it's his death must be understood in the context of the Passover. And so it's helpful for us just to remember what the Passover is. I think it's been mentioned five or six times already in this passage. The Passover, of course, as you know, is the meal that was eaten the night before God redeemed Israel from their bondage in Egypt. It it was on that day a a preview of the great and terrible day of the Lord when God will bring down judgment upon those who, who oppress and injustice and rebellion and sin. But but what happens when God's judgment comes down on Egypt on that night? His judgment comes down, not just on some evil, it comes down on all evil. It did not stop. In other words, the judgment of God on the Passover night did not stop with the Egyptians. God does not say to the Israelite slaves, you will all be fine, don't worry about it. He does not say, you know, you're okay, I'm just here to get the bad guys. No, he he says, you're all bad guys. And, and everyone in Egypt is subject to my justice. This would be the only plague of the ten plagues that would fall on both Egypt and Israel. But God in his grace gave him a way to escape, didn't he? He said, I want you, you need to kill the lamb, spotless lamb, and you need to eat it. And you need to apply the blood to your doorpost. And, and, and the angel of wrath will come by and he'll see the blood. And, and seeing the blood, he'll recognize judgment has already fallen on that lamb If only you take shelter under that blood, right? Your race doesn't matter. You notice this? The fact that you've been enslaved all your life doesn't matter. Your record doesn't matter. Your morality doesn't matter. He doesn't say, okay, all the bad guys need to kill the lamb, but the really good guys, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, don't worry about the lamb. You're okay because you're, you're a good guy. No, he says everyone needs to do this. You were only saved that night through faith in the provision of a substitute. And that night in Egypt, in every home, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. Every, every home, it was either one or the other. That justice would fall on your family or it fall on the substitute. But then God says, this is what I want you to do. right? I want you to remember this. And every year, I want you to eat this meal as a perpetual reminder so that you will never forget how you were saved. How I redeemed you by my grace and my mercy. And so every year for 1,500 years, families would gather together and, and on the Passover night at sundown, there would be singing and there will be praying and there would be blessing and there will be eating and there will be celebrating and there will be remembering. Start at sundown, go all the way to midnight. They'll eat bitter herbs and they will, they will eat unleavened bread and roasted lamb and they will drink from four different cups in fact, Luke even mentions some of the different cups. Look in verse 17. It says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said. And now jump down to verse 19, and he took bread. And now verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten. So you see there's two cups there. There's one cup in verse 17, and then you got the bread, and then you have another cup in verse 20. Uh, there's, there was actually four cups the cup that we, we, we remember in the Lord's Supper is the third cup. And, and, and sometimes, in fact, all the time when I celebrate Lord's Supper, uh, quoting from 1 Corinthians, we'll say, and after supper he took the cup. And you might think, well, wait a second, they went the whole meal without drinking? No, that, it's, no that's not the case. That's the third cup that they take, and, and, uh, uh, and, and there are actually four cups during that time. And part though, the whole, the whole thing that gets this kicked off, this ceremony, they had this, this ritual, when they would begin, the youngest son would begin the night, and he would say to the father, who would act as the host, "Why is this night different from all other nights?" And then, and then the father would explain what all these elements mean, and the bitter herbs are this, and the, this cup is this, and that cup is this." and he would explain it all, and in fact, he would, he would raise the bread, for instance, and he would say. The bread of affliction that our ancestors ate. Okay, Now that's the meal that they're celebrating. But Jesus, he takes the bread and he he is acting as the father or the host. And look what he says in verse 19. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I, I, it's, it, it's almost impossible, it's so hard for us to kind of imagine what their astonishment must have been like. When he holds this bread, and he doesn't say, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate. He said, this bread that you've been eating for 1,500 years, you know what it's about? It's about my body. This is not the bread of our affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. I am your exodus, I am your redemption, I I am your deliverance. And then he takes the cup, and look what he does in verse 20, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. you know what he's saying, instead of the blood of the Passover lamb, you're going to take shelter under my blood, and now I'm going to bring about a covenant that is going to forgive your sins. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking the central act in the history of Israel on the holiest day of Israel's calendar and he is saying, it's about me. It's always been about me. And the only thing I could remotely think about, what would be a kind of a modern parallel, be like on Easter if some pastor, not me, but some other pastor, said, listen, I know we've been doing this Easter thing for 2,000 years and the whole resurrection and all that. I need you to understand it's all about me, right? We, 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 that would be scandal. I mean, we would, be just, we would get up and leave or, or, or maybe uh, tackle him or something cool like that because it would be outrageous. And yet Jesus is saying, for 1,500 years, every year you've been celebrating this and it all has been given to you to prepare you to understand what my death is about. As the Passover was observed the night before God redeems his people from slavery, so this meal is observed the night before God redeems his people, not from slavery. Not from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin. Slavery even to death. That God, 1,500 years earlier, set up Passover and God ordained its annual practice so that his people can rightly understand Christ's death. And that Christ's death, as Jesus says, is for you. You see that in verse 19? It says, he took the bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. This is my body. Now you get this phrase, which is given for you. Let, let God speak those words in your heart this morning. That Jesus' body is broken for you, that his, his blood is spilled for you, that He has died in your place, that you might escape from the righteous wrath of God, that I am the Lamb who takes away your sin. In 1779, there's a man named Charles Simeon. By the way, if, you're, if you want to read a great biography, grab one on Charles Simeon, incredible story. Charles Simeon, uh, in 1779, was a young man. He entered into King's College at Cambridge, as a brilliant and eager student and had uh, zero love for God at all. Well, he was terrified to learn once he started at Cambridge that the Lord's Supper was mandatory for all students. I don't think that's probably the case anymore, but uh, it was back in 1779. And so he was going to have to take the Lord's Supper on Easter Sunday, and Simeon thought the devil was more prepared to take the Lord's Supper than he was. And uh, he was terrified. And so he determined to prepare himself. And like a student, he went and got as many books on the Lord's Supper as he could and began to study them. And he found himself begin to cry out to God for mercy. And he, he began to catalog his sins and, and tried to mourn for them and to repent for them and turn from them. He, he actually became, made himself physically sick through the fasting and the prayers in order to prepare for this. And in all of his studies, he came across the practices of the Jews and that the Jews had this wonderful little practice that God had ordained that they would put their hands on the sacrifice and they confessed their sins on the sacrifice and the sin was transferred onto the substitute. And Simeon thought, well, why do the Jews get that? Why don't we get that? And he said, may, may I transfer my sin to another. Has God provided an offering for me? Well, as he began to study further, he realized that he had, and his name is Jesus. And Wednesday, before the Lord's Supper, he he says, "I, I began to find hope that I might find mercy. And on Thursday through Saturday, his hope increased. And on Easter Sunday, Charles Simeon awoke with these words on his lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah hallelujah. And he went, and he took of the bread, and and took of the wine, and he said, I felt a load being taken off my soul, and I experienced a peace that I've never experienced before, as he knew that Jesus, in his death, paid the penalty for his guilt and his sin. My body is broken for you, Jesus says. And by the way, to finish Simeon's story, he fully devoted himself to God, and grew in his faith, and actually became the vicar of the Holy Trinity Church at Cambridge University, for the next 54 years, he became one of England's greatest preachers ever. And so Jesus here explains his death for us in the context of the Passover. But it, it, what's interesting, he doesn't just explain it, he wants us to remember it, doesn't he? And Consider third this morning that, that we are to remember his death as Jesus expo- uh, lets us know in verse 19. He says, you're to do this in remembrance of me. Perhaps Jesus knows how forgetful we are. And so he institutes this religious rite that we might not forget, that we might not move on from the cross and say, okay, well, the cross is, yeah, yeah, we started there, but now we're on to more advanced things. No, Jesus says we celebrate the Lord's Supper routinely to remember my broken body and my shed blood. It is to be a memorial. This is my body, he says. In other words, let this bread remind you of my broken body. This is this cup of the new covenant in my blood, he says. Let this cup remind you of my blood that was shed. He he says, do this in remembrance of me. Can you imagine, by the way, the apostles, after Jesus has died and ascended to heaven, the first time they might have gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And they distributed the bread. And and the, the body of Christ. And they remembered, didn't they, Christ's body being crucified. And they took the cup and the blood of Christ, and they remembered as they saw the blood of Christ being spilled. In fact, they, as we've already established, became devoted to the Lord's Supper. Why? Because they wanted to remember. You see, the Lord's Supper is like a picture. Do you, you have pictures, right? All of us have pictures. We have pictures of our, of our, our children and our grandchildren. You have them in your homes, you, you have them in your office, right? You, some of you carry them in your wallets. Why, 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 why do we have pictures of our loved ones everywhere? Have, have you forgotten what they look like? Oh, yeah, he does have blue eyes. I forgot that, right? No, of course not. You, you don't have pictures of loved ones and of fond times in order to inform your intellect. You, you already know them. But it's to touch your heart. And so what happens is you look at the pictures and you remember Oh yeah, I remember when we were at the beach, or I remember that Christmas, or I I, re, I remember that time when I was with them, and you think about them, and and. And, and you think maybe you're moved to thank God for them and, and you long to be with them. Maybe dad, you look at your picture of your kids and you say, I just want to go home and get a hug and a kiss and I just want to, to be with them and, and, and I want to I'll be able to have a conversation with them, right? And we, we look at these pictures and they, they touch us deeply. And that's why when your house is burning, you run in and you, you grab the recliner, right? And it's like, okay, I need my recliner, right? Or you go and get the TV and how am I going to live without TV? I don't care about that. That. You start taking pictures off the wall and getting them out as I mean, you, you leave the cat in there. You don't even care. You're just grabbing pictures, right? And you say, I just, I, 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 can't replace these. You remind me of those who who love me, and I love them. We say the Lord's Supper is our picture. It reminds us of the love that was shown on the cross. It creates a longing for us to see him. And so we take the Lord's Supper, and it's our time. To remember Jesus and it's our to remember his sacrifice and remember that his blood who bought us his this grace. It is not, therefore, a mystical ritual. You're not emptying yourself, you're not getting in touch with your inner being or any of that nonsense. You're focusing your mind back on a point in history in which Jesus was nailed to the cross. He says, I want you to remember me. And so you remember him in Gethsemane on his knees saying, Father is or any other way remember him sweating drops of blood. you remember him there in the courtyard of Herod with his back being lacerated and being beaten, spit upon, and mocked and all the rest. you remember him marching through the streets of Jerusalem with a beam upon his shoulder. you remember him hands being nailed there to a beam and his feet being nailed Jesus, I want you to remember me. You take the cup and you remember that his blood was spilled right? I've shed this blood so that you might be forgiven. And he says, let the memories of me flood your soul when you come to this table. Just like the Passover. Why do they have the Passover? It's an annual meal to remember God's wrath passed over them through the death of a lamb. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's to remember. That's what we do. We want to remember his death. But now, why? Here's the question. Why do we remember his death by eating and drinking? Why? Why does Jesus say, "Okay, when you remember my death, I want you to do it through this little meal"? I mean, there's a thousand different ways he could have helped us remember his death. Why eat and drink? Well, why do? Why do you ever eat and drink? Why would Jesus? You do so? For two reasons: one, to stay alive, right, to be nourished, and two, to find delight. We we like eating and drinking, don't we? I, I think we eat the Lord's supper for the same reason. Now, of course, not physical nourishment, which you're, you're not going to get a lot of calories out of this meal, okay? This is for your spiritual nourishment. It's for your spiritual delight. As, as our, as our bodies need nourishment, I think our souls need nourishment. I would suggest to you, in other words, that this, though it is a memorial, it's more than a memorial. It's more than remembering. It's doing more than pointing us to the past. It is a time in which God will come and encourage us in the present as we in some way participate in his death. And I I want to invite you to leave Luke's gospel and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is my last point for us this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul kind of fleshes out uh, the Lord's Supper. That's on page 957 here, if you're using a pew Bible. In 1 Corinthians 10, there's a very kind of interesting verse Uh, that raises all sorts of questions, but uh, we won't be able to answer all of them. But look in verse 16, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, what what does that mean, that we're participating in the blood of Christ or the body of Christ? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Some have suggested that when a priest blesses these elements, that they actually and miraculously are transformed in the literal body and blood of Christ. And even though what they look like and what they taste like is the same, they actually become the body and blood of Jesus. This is, if you want a large word, this is called transubstantiation. and and it's the idea they say well Jesus took the bread and he said this is my body and so when we take the bread it, it must be the body of Christ and so when we eat and drink according to this tradition we are eating and drinking uh, eating from Jesus body and drinking from Jesus blood and doing so provides saving grace it's associated with receiving salvation that's why in these traditions you have priests in the church not pastors though you read the new testament you'll never find a single priest in a church you only find pastors or elders But in this tradition, since Jesus is being re-sacrificed through this meal, you need a a priest in order to have a sacrifice. Well, let me me humbly suggest to you and and, um, sternly suggest to you at the same time that when Jesus raises the bread and says, this is my body, he is speaking not literally but symbolically. And I would suggest to you further that no one in the room at that night thought when Jesus raised the bread and said, this is my body, that they all concluded, oh, that bread has now transformed into the body of Christ, why Jesus' body is actually holding the bread. In fact, not only did no one think that that night, no one thought it for the next 1,200 years. Because this whole doctrine of transubstantiation emerged in the 13th century. Um, And so Jesus is here speaking figuratively, uh, just as they did in in the Passover. When they raised the bread in the Passover, he said the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate, no one thought in the Passover... That that the bread has now miraculously turned into fifteen hundred year old bread that their ancestors ate. They understand that this is a representation, uh, and uh, it, it's it's a symbolism right? We, we do this all the time. We'll take an old photo, and you'll point to the photo, and you'll say, that's me over there. You're not saying, no one th- assumes that the photo has actually become you. It actually just represents you. It's a, it's a symbol of you. And so when Jesus talks about the bread being his body and the wine, his blood, they're saying they represent my body and my blood, that Jesus is not being sacrificed all over again. That's why we take this, this meal. We call it a meal, not a sacrifice. That's why we take it at a table and not an altar. Because Jesus is not being sacrificed. Okay, so that's what it doesn't mean. But, but we could go too far. And we could say, well, then, okay, and, and many have. Well, Jesus is not physically here, but some have gone so far to say Jesus is not here at all. And not, then not only do they re- reject the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper, they affirm the real absence of Christ. They say Jesus could be anywhere in this world, but he better not show up at the Lord's Supper, right? He's not here. I would like to suggest that he is here. And I would, I would suggest when we come to this meal, he is here in a unique and profound way. Not as a sacrifice, mind you, but as a host to us. And in fact, I had us this morning prepare our hearts in Psalm 23. And as you know, it begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he leads me beside still waters and green pastures and all the rest. And we, we see that God understands you as a sheep and him as a shepherd. But you notice the transition in that psalm. It doesn't go all the way through as you as sheep and a shepherd. All of a sudden we're... He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. What happened? He's no longer the shepherd. What is he? He's the host, right? And he's feeding us here. Well, I think that's what's happening at the Lord's Supper. That 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 Jesus is where Psalm, the Lord's Supper is where Psalm twenty three is lived out. That Jesus comes and feeds our soul and nourishes us. And, pours out um, His love upon us. It's this spiritual eating and drinking that we, that we feed, our souls feed upon the benefits of his, of his death. In fact, you notice what Jesus does, if you're back in Luke chapter 22. He, he raises the cup, and He says something interesting in, ver, uh, in verse 20. He says, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Right? And we know the new covenant is promised by the prophets, but... Most clearly in Jeremiah 31, as Pastor Josh read for us this morning, where Jesus says, behold, the days are coming when I, excuse me, God says to the prophet, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. And he goes on and says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will forgive their iniquity and I will, I will remember their sins no more. God says there's coming a day, please understand when there will be complete forgiveness and you're going to be transformed from the inside and you and I will be reconciled forever. And you notice if you read Jeremiah 31, it's God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. God says, I will do it. You don't, you don't do it. I do it. And then Jesus stands up at this last supper and says, is my blood that will bring it about. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is going to pay for your sin. My blood is going to reunite you with God. And so when we take this meal, Jesus says, take this, take this bread. It's my body. He says, take this cup. It's my blood. And I don't know if you ever feel like this, but sometimes I do, and I, I have the bread in my hand, and I <laughs> say, Lord, I'm, I'm unclean. You ever feel like that? Or don't, don't you know how I spoke to my wife this week? You know, those thoughts come in your mind. You have that bread in your hands. I can't believe. I'm, don't you know how I neglected prayer this week? Don't you know how I failed to be the father that I'm supposed to be this week? Right? You have that in your head. Say, God, don't you realize what I've done? And he comes to you through the Lord's Supper. And you know what he says to you? No, I don't. I don't realize what you've done because I will remember your sins no more. All I see is righteousness. My blood covers it all. He wants not you just to remember the past. He wants to encourage you today. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. We are to rejoice in what he has purchased for us through this meal. Our souls are to experience the love of God. I I don't think you should ever come to this table timid. I don't think you should ever come to this table unsure how God will find you. He will not treat you as your sins deserve. That's what this meal is celebrating. We come confident that he will accept us, not because of your righteousness, not because of what you did this week, not because of your record, but because Christ has shed his blood for you. He has died for you. And as surely as you taste this bread, and as surely as you drink this cup, you can be assured, my brothers and sisters in Christ, your sins are forgiven. They're gone. I don't remember them, he says. He says. Because of Christ's work. But, of course, we have to take it. I think there's another, there, listen, there's another reason perhaps Jesus chose a meal to remember his death and, and, and to, to, to help us to, to appreciate the benefits of is that the meals need to be taken. They need to be eaten. And, and, and you could come and you could look at a meal and say, isn't that beautiful, right? And you could smell the meal and say, like, oh, that smells great, But the point of the food is not looking or smelling even. It's eating. You need to take it within you. And you can praise a meal all you want, but but it does you no good unless you eat from it. You could could have a meal in front of you and still starve to death. You need to take it in. And I think Christ is teaching us that you you may believe all these truths in which we share today. You may believe that Jesus has died to take away our sins. That may be your, you, you say, I agree with that but have you ever embraced it as yours by faith? And my fear is that there's some of you here that, that you hold to Christian doctrine, but you've never received Christ. And that you would even now, as God works in your heart, come to him this moment, that, that you would say to him in your heart, I, I hide under the blood of Jesus. And that you are my Savior. And you are my Lord. Let this meal be an encouragement to you as you share in the body and the blood of Christ. But I, I would say as we end our time and, and come to this table, that this meal not only points us to the past and encourages us to the present, there's also hope for the future. You see that in verse 17? It says, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and Divided amongst yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He says, I'm not going to eat of this meal ever again until, right, we're at another table. And it's a far bigger table. And it's a far better meal than what we'll have today. And there will be far more people. In fact, what this is, is simply a dress rehearsal to the wedding feast, right? These are just appetizers that will wet your appetite for the day in in which all the longings of your heart are satisfied. And so you may come to this meal today and you may have trouble in your life. You may have trials besieging you. Please understand, even in the midst of those trials, this meal, Jesus speaks to you through this meal and says, There's a day coming when we will eat and drink together in the kingdom of God. And so you take this Lord's Supper in the midst of trouble, and Jesus is saying to you, I'm going to get you home. I'm going to bring the kingdom, right? And and in fact, I will not eat or drink again until I do it. You see what he's doing? He's taking an oath. Right? If, If you say, I'm not going to eat or drink until... I do something, you're making an oath, in fact, a very serious oath. In Acts 23, people were so furious at Paul, they say, we will not eat or drink until what? Until we, we kill him, they say, right? What they're saying, when you say that, you're in a sense saying, I'm not going to, I, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die trying, Right? I, I'm gonna do this even if it kills me. And in this culture, sometimes they would kill an animal in the midst of one of these oaths. And the, the idea would be that the, 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 the animal's blood is spilled and the, what they'd be communicating is that if I don't, if I don't complete what I'm saying... Let, let my blood be spilled. In fact, there's this amazing passage in Genesis 15 where God keeps giving these promises to Abraham. He says, Abraham, your children are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, and you're going to inherit this land. And Abraham just gets older and older and older. There's no kid and no land. And he says, God, how do I know? How do I know? And God says, okay, listen, I want you to kill an animal. And so Abraham must have known that an oath was about to be taken. And so Abraham kills the animal, and he separates all the pieces around and all of a sudden, this floating, flaming torch appears, which is a representation of God, right? God is the pillar of fire. And you know what that torch does? It starts to go in between the animals. And the torch moves right, right between the slain animals. And this must have shocked Abraham. In fact, uh, Pastor Tim Keller cites a Jewish scholar at Berkeley University, okay? He's not a believer, But he says on that passage, listen to this, it looks like God is making the blood oath. He is saying to Abraham, I will bless you even if it kills me. But then this Jewish scholar goes on and says, well, that can't be, right? Of course not, right? But that's what the Lord's Supper is. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I will not eat or drink until I bring the kingdom of God. I'm not going to eat or drink again until I bring you home. I will do it, not even if it kills me. I will do it, and it will kill me to bring you home. In fact, he, he says, I'm not going to eat or drink anymore. He, he takes the third cup of the Passover. He doesn't take the fourth and final cup of the Passover, the cup of celebration, the cup of glory that you drink at midnight to end the Passover. But he does drink a fourth cup, doesn't he? Not the fourth cup, but a fourth cup. Look in verse 42. Verse 42. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is not the cup of celebration or cup of glory. It's the cup of the wrath of God. And Father, in effect, Father in effect says to him, no, no, son, you will not drink the cup of blessing tonight. You will not drink the cup of celebration tonight. You will drink the cup of my wrath, and you must empty it, the cup of the wrath of God for sinners. And so our Lord Jesus Christ will drink the cup of the wrath of God so that one day you and I can sit down in the kingdom of God and drink the cup of blessing with him. Remember that work and let that encourage you today and set your hopes on its fulfillment as we take this supper meal. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your gift to us of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for his sacrifice, in which we are now come to celebrate. Help us even now as we pray silently. Prepare our hearts to come to this meal in gratitude and joy. our father and our lord and our creator you have given us life and being and you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your son jesus christ the eternal word made flesh for our salvation for the precious gift of this mighty savior who has reconciled us to you we praise you and we bless you And now by your grace we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus for the sin of the world. And it's in joy of the resurrection and it's in expectation of the coming kingdom that our souls feast upon this meal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.